welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, animal welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I am Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to Simone Muller about predation substitute training. So welcome to the podcast, Simone. Thank you very much, Kayla. Hi, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're excited to have you. And for everyone at home, so Simone Muller, MA, is a certified dog trainer and dog behavior consultant, ATN, from Germany. She specializes in force-free anti-predation training and is the author of two books of the Predation Substitute Training series, which are called Hunting Together and Rocket Recall. Simone is an active member and part of the training committee of wildlife detection dogs. She is proud to be an associate trainer at the Scotland-based Lothlorien Dog Training Club, which is ATLDTC, and a member of the Initiative of Force-Free Dog Training, the Pet Professional Guild, and the Pet Trainers of Europe, PDTE. You can follow Simone's work on Facebook and Instagram under Predation Substitute Training. And those of you who are at home may already have a pretty good idea what Simone and I are going to be talking about today. I'm really excited to get into it. But first, we do have to get into our science highlight. So this week, we read Performance of Pugs, German Shepherds, and Greyhounds, which are all of the species Canis lupus familiaris, on an odor discrimination task. This was written by our beloved Dr. Nathaniel Hall, along with Kelsey Glenn, David Smith, and Clive Wynn. It was published in the Journal of Comparative Physiology in 2015. Basically, what they were looking at with this paper is that public opinion and scientific literature alike reflect a widespread assumption that there are differences in behavior between dog breeds. And as well as, obviously, there's there are physiological phenotypic um, changes that we can see between dog breeds. However, direct em empirical behavior assessments of such differences are rare and have produced mixed results. So what they were looking at is whether or not different breeds actually perform differently on an odor discrimination task. Their findings were that choice of breed for scent detection work may be driven more by historical choices than by data. In this article, they directly assessed the ability of German Shepherds, Pugs, and Greyhounds to acquire a simple olfactory discrimination and their ability to maintain performance when the, ability, when the target odor was diluted. Their results showed that contrary to expectations, Pugs significantly outperformed German Shepherds in acquiring odor discrimination and maintaining performance when the odorant concentration was decreased. Nine out of 10 Greyhounds did not complete the acquisition training because they failed a motivation criterion. These results indicate that Pugs outperformed German Shepherds in the dimensions of olfaction assessed. However, Greyhounds showed a general failure to participate. Overall, these results highlight the importance of direct behavior manage management of assumed behavioral breed characteristics. So really interesting here. Basically what they, again, what they found is that in this odor discrimination task, you would have expected the German Shepherds to perform better. They in fact did not um, as compared to pugs. I do think as far as our lines of work, it still would be important to take note of the fact that I would imagine you would rather have a German Shepherd in the field with you than a pug due to brachycephaly and um, the fact that our German Shepherds would move much more easily and quickly over um, rugged terrain than a small pug. However, it is not necessarily because of, because of the odor discrimination capabilities that um, are why we're picking a given breed. Um, so that is, that's our science highlight. Now let's get into it with Simone Muller. So let's start with the obvious first question. What 
is predation substitute training. Mm. Predation substitute training is a force-free method to stop predatory chasing in dogs. And compared to the more traditional approaches that are out there, um, it's a kind of holistic approach that takes into consideration the dog's needs. And uh, um, instead of uh, making the dog stop, chasing or stop um, performing any predatory behavior, we rather look at um, becoming a more, um, to grow more together like a team. Okay. Yeah, that that's perfect. And so what, um, what were you kind of seeing before you started coming up with the concept of predation substitute training? Um, what were you seeing in how people were dealing with um, predation that you thought wasn't working or was dissatisfactory to you on an ethical framework? Kind of what were what were you seeing and what were the problems that you um, you understood with the current yeah. approach? Well, first of all, I have to mention that I didn't come up with the idea. It is a concept that has been existing in uh, among German dog trainers for quite a long time. So I think the beginning was about almost 20 years ago, because um, quite a while ago, we in Germany, we banned uh, e-collars and now we even banned uh, prong collars from being used. So um, the dog trainers had to come up with a more, yeah, creative or sophisticated way yeah, to stop dogs uh -huh. from hunting as we in Germany have a really high wildlife density. So you come across wildlife all the time when you walk in a German uh, forest, for example. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. um, I learned these concepts uh, during my dog trainer education that I did in 20s or that I started in 2016 and finished in 2018. And then I went to Scotland for three years to work with uh, Lothlorien Dog Services with Claire Staines. And uh, we chatted about um, a lot of things during that time. And uh, at one point we found out that these um, uh, anti-predation trainings, the force-free anti-predation trainings do basically not exist in the English-speaking world. So mm -hmm. the concept that uh, people had when they dealt with predation was simply to stop the dog in whatever way. And if you are um, a balanced dog trainer and you use an e-collar, this might work to some extent. But for the force-free dog trainers, it's always a struggle because the only way to stop the dog from hunting is to establish a solid recall and this does not always work because when the mm -hmm. dog is already in full chase it's really hard to to stop the dog yeah and uh, this was when we found out that um, the the holistic concept is not out there and yeah I thought maybe I can change that <laughs> Yeah, well, and we're so grateful. And you've certainly been having a big year with, I feel like I had not heard of predation substitute training or you, Simone Muller, six months ago, even. And then now I've seen you at at least one conference. I've heard you on a couple of the big podcasts that I enjoy. So um, yeah, I, I think it's working. And it's, it's very exciting. And I think Anyone who's listening who's got a dog can totally understand what you're saying as far as, especially if you are more in the positive reinforcement, force-free end of the dog training um, spectrum or whatever you want to call it. Um, predation has always felt to me like the area where I am least confident in the ability of positive reinforcement to really deal with it. Um, for exactly what you're saying, you know, if you want to stop a behavior, if you want to suppress a behavior, punishment is pretty much the only thing that will 
do that. You can train alternative responses. You can, you know, build up these reinforcement histories. You can do all of these things that I'm sure are part of what you're doing and are certainly what I currently do. But, um, you know, that moment when a dog is triggered by a prey animal in the environment or an animal that they perceive as prey in the environment. Um, yeah, once they're in that full chase, it's really, really hard to get them back. And there have certainly been times where I've been frustrated or scared or angry enough with my dogs that I have wished I had an e-collar <laughs> to deal with them, even though I am a pretty avowed anti-e-collar person. Um so I'm really excited to hear more about what you've got going on because I, I again I think like our approaches aside from teaching recall, you know, are also doing like some desensitization work and focus and engagement and teaching the dogs not to chase by exposing them to these animals in controlled ways. We can talk about that more and we talked about that quite a bit in our episode with Skyless Ecology. But so why don't you take me through kind of what what predation substitute training does encompass, and then I would love to kind of pull apart how that's different or similar to what um, what I've been doing with my dogs for conservation work. All the things that you just mentioned are in this protocol, but mm -hmm. in a very structured way. So uh -huh. you have a kind of yeah schedule or a kind of plan to work through with your dogs. And um, the most important thing is that you understand that you work on very different levels. So you, um, it's like you put together a puzzle of different pieces and you have to work on all these pieces. And uh, once you take away one piece or you skip one piece, the whole puzzle does not work anymore. So it's very important to incorporate all the different parts of predation substitute training or anti or mm -hmm. force free anti predation training. And, um, yeah, mainly there are four parts that you have to work on. The first one is management and prevention. Mm -hmm. And when you hear management and prevention, most of the people or most people think, yeah, you put a leash on your dog and then it's prevented from hunting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's not that. Um, yeah, there are more sophisticated ways to do that. Um, the most important thing is that you stay in contact with your dog while you are out and you... Um, teach your dog to stay on a path, for example, and not run around in the bushes um, to, so they stumble across wildlife. Or you teach them to stay in a certain parameter around you and uh, check in with you frequently. So there are a lot of things that you can do um, in order to stay in contact with your dog. And then the second part is about tools that you use when you are in the situation. So when there is a deer or when there is a rabbit, hmm. um, jumping and running in front of you. So <laughs> what you basically do is you teach your dog calmness around wildlife so that they still are in a thinking state of their brain that um, allows them to do an alternative behavior, which is basically um, standing and watching and uh, <clears throat> instead of running off. So the deal is always you can stand as long as you want to, but you cannot chase. And this works quite well because all the parts of the predatory sequence um, are intrinsically reinforcing for the dog. So they feel good. Mm -hmm. And uh, stalking is a part of predation. So it's nothing, it's not a kind of um, alternative behavior that we use that does not fit the motivation of the dog in this very moment. They can do 
they can stay within the predatory sequence. They can still hunt, but with their eyes and not with their feet, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. Can we, <laughs> and let's, let's put a quick pause. So we're mm-hmm. at step two of four or component two of four. Let's, um, if you've got it on the top of your head, otherwise I can help out. What is the predation, the predatory sequence? Yeah. Um, just in case anyone at home isn't familiar with that. Yeah, I, I'm sure we have to talk about this because um, not everybody realizes predation when it starts, though um, every dog owner re- realizes, okay, now my dog is hunting when they are in a full chase, but then it's too late. <laughs> like, there are so we've many things. There. Yeah, we've all been there and it happens. Even with my dog, it happens from time to time that uh, yeah, that I am too slow or the rabbit was too close or they had a bad day and they couldn't pull themselves together. So, yeah, n- no problem. It happens. Um, but uh, predation starts long before the chase. So the first signs of uh, predation is when your dog is scanning the environment. Um, for example, you have come across this that you step out of woodland into a field or you come to the top of a hill and then your dog suddenly stops and they look around. And this can be with their nose up in the air, air scenting, or it can be um, with their eyes scanning the environment, or it can be with their noses down, zigzagging in the bushes mm-hmm. if you have a little spaniel or something like this. Um, and this is where it all ha- where it all starts. So they are basically looking for prey. There is no trigger yet but they want to come across something. And this is the first step on the ladder. And here you still have a lot of time to get your foot into the door um, and ask them to do something else, maybe together with you. Because um, at this point, they are on a very low level of arousal. But this can change really quickly. And as soon as the dog finds out, oh yeah, there is something, Um, they go into the stalk, which means um, they do not look around anymore. They are focused on one particular Mm -hmm. animal or whatever they think might be an animal. Sometimes it's just a a molehill or something like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and you can see this totally in their body language because suddenly they become really tense and a little bit arrow shaped and not that wiggly anymore. And then what Mm -hmm. they start is they start to creep forward and the purpose of the creep in um, uh, yeah in in canines that still go through the whole ladder, for example, wolves or dingoes or yeah coyotes, um, is to bridge the gap between themselves and the prey animal because most prey animals have very long legs. Evolution has done its part here, and they are, might uh, be quicker or um, mm-hmm. yeah, faster, or they can run longer than. Um, the the dog or the wolf or whatever. So they want to be as close as possible before they then go into the chase. Yeah, and here we go. Now everybody knows, yeah, my dog is hunting. (laughs) But here we are already on a very high level of arousal, which is very, very difficult. Yeah, we've already missed that eye and stock. And even before the eye, there's the scanning And then in like the full predatory sequence, you know, we talk about there's a grab bite, a kill bite and dissecting and consuming. And obviously, ideally, we're also interrupting far before then. Yeah, Um, I feel like at at the chase is kind of the very last moment that you really want to even be trying to intervene. 
everything that comes after that, that you just mentioned, the grab bite and the kill bite and then dissect and eat. Yeah, you don't really want to have that as a dog owner. <laughs> no, no. And especially in the conservation dog world, you know, yeah. it is such a huge deal for us. It is such a privilege to be able to work with our dogs and at times have permission to bring our dogs in places where dogs are not allowed in order to protect the environment. And one of the things that we I think is really tough as an industry is figuring out how to talk about the fact that we are selecting for dogs or, you know, dogs inherently are predators. It's not like we have detection horses where we wouldn't have to deal with predatory behavior. If I was, if we, if we ran uh, equine conservationists, um, but, um, or bunnies or whatever it is. So we have to deal with the fact that our, our canine partners are inherently predators. And then even on top of that, when you think about what we're selecting for in working dogs, we're trying to slice really thinly between a dog who enjoys the hunt, who enjoys using their nose to try to find something that's hard to find and enjoys the chase so that we can reward them with toys but doesn't but they have we're really looking for these dogs that have like mapped that thoroughly onto toys and don't map that onto wild animals and sometimes we get lucky and that distinction is clear to a dog and a lot of times we don't um a lot of times that's it's just not possible it, it, i i mean i don't think yeah i don't think it's possible to consistently always have dogs that have hunt drive and play drive and all of these things that we need for them to work and do not also come with some amount of prey drive. And again, even if, you know, they're still predators. So, okay. So you said first steps, first step is kind of this prevention and management and keeping, I love what you're talking about as far as staying engaged with the dog. Um, because if most of our dogs, if they're in a nice bubble and they're engaged with us and they're checking in and they're, we're on a walk together, it is that much easier to know when to interrupt and have a chance to interrupt if we need to. And then second is we're working on this calmness around wildlife. So what does that, I can imagine what I have done and would do um, in that, but what are some of the things that, some exercises that may fit into that category? Uh, okay, I get it. Right. Um, yeah. In in the situation when you come across wildlife, you um, you don't play any games with them. You don't do any exercises like that. You just um, capture the behavior that they naturally show. So when they show um, a solid stalk or they stalk something or they watch something, um, this is what you capture and you um, reward it and you try to make it bigger so it gets a nice reinforcement history and uh, when you make the stalk bigger then three things can happen the first thing is that uh, the chain might break at this point and they do not go any further in the predatory chain which would be ideal and you can you can achieve that um, if you train your dog very young or Yes, in some dogs you can achieve it, but not in every dog. That is um, realistic to say. But what you can achieve in every dog is that um, they will show the stalk longer before they enter the next step on the ladder, before they go into the chase. And um, this buys you time, basically. So you still have time to put your dog on the leash or to ask them to come away with you and do something else. And then what is really crucial here 
is the kind of reinforcement that you use here. Because if you just hand them over a dry cookie and say, well, nice, nice, well done, you didn't chase, so here's your cookie, the next time your dog will say, uh, okay, I will never come back again. I will just go straight into the chase next time because this was so not rewarding for me. So you have to look at the motivations uh, and uh, the motivation here is they want to hunt. So you have to play some predation games with them as a kind of substitute. And there is where the substitution comes into play that um, as a kind of reward and as an outlet, you have to play predation games with your dog that fulfill their needs because they still have these needs. They don't live or they don't know that they live in a world where it's not appropriate to chase and kill wildlife. And uh, wow. yeah, so you have to give this to them in a controlled way. And uh, this is the, the third part of the puzzle that you play predation games with them either in the situation as a reinforcer or in another context that is not that when there is nothing around you, you just uh, say, okay, now we are on a nice meadow, let's play some games. And uh, after they had these games that involve their noses, their eyes, um, their ears even, uh, then it might happen that they say, okay, I had this today, I'm satisfied and now I won't go on the next track that comes across me uh, that I come across uh -huh. and uh, yeah it makes them far more approachable for you and we have games for almost all this oh we have games for all the sequences to uh, or the, the parts of the the predatory sequence that oh, mimic cool. these behaviors yeah from from the scan to the stalk the creep the chase of course which is quite easy to do it with a flirt pole or a ball mm. and let them chase in a in a controlled way and then you also have um yeah the rather cool down games like for example dissecting something that is okay to dissect not a live animal but maybe a paper bag or your amazon carton boxes or whatever and then of course eating yeah eating is a big part to um, calm down again yeah it's so interesting to hear you talk about this because so back in gosh, this was like seven or eight years ago now, I used to work full-time in an animal shelter and I was a behavior consultant there. So it was kind of my job. Whenever we had a dog or a cat, that was, it was questionable whether or not that dog or cat was going to be an adoption candidate for a behavior reason. It was my job to kind of work with and assess those guys um, along with a team of seven or eight others. <laughs> and so with cats in particular, if we had cats that we labeled overstim um, or overstimulated. So these are the sorts of cats where, you know, you've them a couple times and they turn around and bite you on the hand. One of the big things we would do for them, um, aside from clicker training and working on building up their tolerance and kind of consent-based procedures, is we also worked on a lot of these um, predatory games with them. And one of the things that blew my mind, so we'd have the fishing pole cat toy that's like a mini flirt pole, but for cats. Um, and we would have them, allow them to catch it, allow them, some of the cats would want to catch the bundle of feathers and take it under a chair and pull it apart. And we would let them do that. And then at the end, we always gave them a high protein, high fat snack. And that was meant to kind of complete the whole predatory sequence. And then the theory being kind of satiate and calm these cats down. They had um, kind of that box checked for the day and that 
really did seem to help a lot in these other behavior problems that were totally you know, on the surface, unrelated to aggression. So the point being, I think the only other time I've ever heard about people talking about food and dissection as part of the predatory sequence is actually with cats. And I love hearing it here with our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's so logical if you think about it. Yeah. Because when you when you go to a gym, you start with warm-up, then comes the full-blown workout that makes you sweat, and then you do a cool-down. You don't just stop in the middle of your spinning class and say, okay, I'm done, I go home. And this, this <laughs> yeah. is what we well, do you with our dogs. make sure you get, get a protein shake or like a... <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. A, you know, even, <laughs> even just like a fistful of grapes or something on your way home, like you're going to exactly. eat Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but we do this with our dogs all the time. We take them yeah. to the dog park and then we throw ball, throw ball, throw ball, throw ball. Like um, we give them the chase, which is the, the, the most arousing part of the predatory sequence where most uh -huh. of the dopamine is released and then when they are fully pumped full of these hormones that make them go crazy we put away the ball and we go home and we say okay now sleep for eight hours because i go to work and then we come home yeah. and the couch is destroyed or the carpet is chewn up and this is because our dogs need to calm down and if we don't give them this calm down they do it or they get it for themselves, which might be your carpet. <laughs> mm -hmm. by, because by chewing and licking and, um, yeah, and dissecting things, this is the end of the sequence that makes you content in the end because you have your food and you have had the, the chase and now you can rest. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I'm even thinking, you know, what I've been doing here. So we use uh, toys as reinforcers in the field. So that's a little bit different. But at at night um, here, I've been playing a little bit of fetch with the boys and we'll play some fetch. Ideally, I, we're working on kind of restraining them, throwing things into tall grass and having them go pick them out. We do that for a while. And then I've been also playing some tug of war and then moving into them working for some dinner so they get some food and some training and we're kind of almost i i wasn't thinking of this way but kind of ratcheting down the arousal level and then ending with the second half of their meal just comes in a bowl and then we put them down and they go take their nap um or hopefully at that point it's like 7 p.m and we're kind of done for the day um so, yeah, I, I love that. Um, okay, so just to recap here, just so we've got it all in one go. So what are kind of the four components of this predation substitute training again? So the, <clears throat> the first one was uh, management and prevention so that your mm -hmm. dog stays in contact with you. The second one was the tool that you have in the situation, which basically teaching them calmness or impulse control. And then mm -hmm. the third one is to give them an outlet through predatory games or predation games. And the fourth component, the last component, of course, is an interrupter. Um, yeah, it would be uh, um, every anti-predation um, protocol needs a positive interrupter to interrupt um, predation when it happens. So, for example, as I mentioned before, the, the deer was too fast and too, um, too near for my dogs mm -hmm. to pull themselves together and they went off and then I need to recall my dogs and I need to make, make sure that the recall is uh, paired with uh, need-oriented rewards. So if they want to chase, I reward with a chase and not with a cookie into their mouth. 
Um, this is the, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> the basics of it. Um, and there are several tools that you can use to make your recall really rock solid so that mm -hmm. they, uh, they can listen to this recall even when they are in a, in a chase. But this is a lot of work. So it's not something that you, it's not like a, a magic pill you give your dog and then they won't hunt anymore. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a chore and you have to put yeah. a lot of effort in it. It's not an, a quick fix. Sometimes it's uh, a journey that uh, goes on. I think it goes on as long as your dog lives. Um, you mm -hmm. might have quick results in the beginning. So it's not that it takes ages um, to get uh, a foot into the door here. Um, you get quick results from um, this kind of antipredation training because you work with the dog's needs. So it's very logical for the dog and they progress really fast in the beginning but it's a work that never ends so you always have mm -hmm. to work on this if you have a, a dog with a high prey motivation um, you have to work with them as long as they live Listen, you and your dog are already canine conservationists by listening to the show, so go ahead and show it off. Join the club. Check out our brand new merch store, which is located at canineconservationists.org slash shop. It's stocked with stickers and magnets and bags and shirts. We're adding new designs all the time. If you're an artist wanting to collaborate, just we split profits and are eager to hear from you. Reach out at canineconservationists at gmail.com. We also offer all of our webinars on demand through our store, so you can check out our puppy raising webinar, alerts and changes of behavior, introducing a target odor, as well as seeking sourcing and alerting. We're also planning to add new webinars to this all the time, so if you've got a request for a webinar or you're a practitioner hoping to contribute a webinar, again, we're going to split our profits with you and you can reach out to us at canineconservationist at gmail.com. Let's keep the learning going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of a good point to circle, to draw out a little bit more is, you know, recognizing that we, both with breeds and with individuals, there are some dogs who are more motivated by predatory sequences than by others. Um, have you had any particular cases or clients you would like to highlight about a dog that struggled with this and succeeded? Or have you had any cases where it really didn't work and the, it, it just was going to end up being a dog that couldn't be walked safely in nature. Yeah, it depends on the dog. So it's very, very individual. Um, there are dogs that are not really prey driven. Um, they, mm -hmm. they, they perform predatory behavior, but the root of it all is more stress related. So um, I'm thinking of a border collie here that I had um, in my training and uh, he was excessively looking for mice and excessively looking for prey. So he was jumping into the woods, out into the woods and out again. And um, the, 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 the problem was that there was a lot of stress going on at home so he wasn't good at being left mm. alone and he had to stay alone um, for about almost eight hours a day and then when the people came home they immediately took him out for the for his walk <clears throat> and uh, this was where he was showing all this predatory behavior and um Gotcha. We didn't work a lot on predation here. We worked a little bit on recall, but that was it. And the main work that we did was to teach him to stay alone comfort, uh, without stress. And uh, as soon as he uh, um, didn't have that background stress going on at home, he was not 
looking for um for this kick outside all the time because um he used this um happy hormones that were released through uh, predation as a kind of stress relief and uh, yeah he didn't need that then anymore however there wow, are also dogs yeah. that are truly um yeah prey driven or prey motivated i rather use the word motivation than drive um and here you have to do a more yeah holistic approach you have to teach them all the four components it's not enough to um to teach them recall and that's it so um yes there are dogs that are really or the owners who are really successful and then you can walk your dog off leash but uh, you not with every dog so it's not a guarantee that you will be able to um, have your dog off leash after the training or something like that but um, i have not come across any dog where I didn't see an improvement. So yeah. um, I rather tell people not to focus, if you take the off-leash time as an example, um, from zero off-leash and 100%, because That's there is not- so much in between that you can reach. For example, you can um, achieve that your dog is good off-leash for about 20% of the time. Um, when you work uh, or when you walk across a meadow where you know there is not much wildlife and then you can yeah give it a try and you just drop the long line or you take the leash off for about five minutes and then suddenly you feel okay now I'm not comfortable with the situation anymore so put the leash back on no pressure yeah um, it is at least something and you can always make the situation for you and yourself or your dog better and improve the situation and uh, then it depends totally on the individual team the person how much work they put into it the dog the learning experience of the dog um, the previous learning experience or the genetics of the dog how far you can go and how much you can achieve yeah yeah i think i think those are those are so many good points that you've made there um and i think especially your point about you know we're probably not going to go from a hundred percent of your walks are on a six foot lead or a two meter lead to a hundred percent of your walks are off leash and your dog is perfect. Uh, Certainly not very quickly. And honestly, even I I don't think I would say that my older dog Barley is at a hundred percent in all situations. There are still always going to be situations where there are, so many ground nesting birds or so many bunnies or so many bears or whatever that even if his behavior is something I trust implicitly, there's just too much risk to the wildlife or too much risk to us from the wildlife to ever really pursue a hundred percent. And like with my younger dog, Niffler, he's certainly at a stage where in open forests, he's good. In fields, he's good. When he's working, he's good. But in dense forest situations um, where we are not working, he needs to be monitored pretty closely. Um, we have a 30-foot long line. He still drags at times. Um, and we're still paying him really, really heavily for check-ins and really working on keeping that perimeter smaller. He's an intact 21-month-old boy, so he really wants to range and really wants to run far and the only times we have trouble with wildlife is when he 
has already ranged too far and then something happens. And as you said, step one, that connection between the two of us is broken already. So either I don't even recognize it until something has kind of happened. And sometimes I'll even just see on the GPS caller that something has gone wrong. Um, or even if I do see it, um, you know, I, I'm so far away that my voice isn't very salient to him and, you know, these sorts of issues. So I love that you're pointing out, you know, even when it gets really good and even though it is improving, getting to 100% isn't always possible, isn't always, again, realistically a goal. Like here in the Western U.S., there are just always going to be places where it is not, I would not consider it safe to have my dog off leash no matter what their training is. They could be walking practically between my legs and I still feel like it might be better to have them on leash. Yeah. And I think it shouldn't be a goal. Uh, yeah, you can have this as a goal, of course, to give your dog off leash time because it's life, it's quality of life for them. But uh, I, I, I always feel that people have such a big pressure on them and you tell them that this should be the goal. So <laughs> I, I would rather look at the individual team and what is their needs. And uh, uh -huh. oftentimes people don't even expect that much. You think as a trainer, oh, there can be this and this and we can still improve that. But people um, or dog owners are often um, just, yeah, content with little improvements that make their life uh -huh. easier. Yeah. Well, and I loved what you said, that first dog that you gave the example of where this Border Collie was doing a lot of, uh, we would call it crittering, um, <laughs> where he's out and he's hunting and hunting and hunting and really looking for these mice in this way. That The way you described it sounded frantic. It sounded compulsive. It sounded like a lot. <laughs> sounds like the sort of behavior I would expect from a terrier. Um, and the problem for this dog was actually much more holistic and required taking a big step back to look at the overall wellness picture. And I'm so excited to hear you talk about that in the context of predation, um, because it seems like so much of this predation substitute training you're talking about is making sure that the dogs are well and getting their needs satiated elsewhere, which again is something that I think is really important. I think there is a fundamental huge ethical issue to me with taking a shock collar to a predator that we have bred to cooperatively hunt with us for generations and then blasting them to heck for doing that. And that has always felt really unethical to me. And then even just recalling a dog or always having a dog on leash. And again, having this, this cooperative hunter that is part of our homes and never allowing them to hunt has always sat a little weirdly with me as well. So I love that we've come up with this way that is entirely wildlife friendly. That yeah. still meets our dog's needs. Like how, how cool, like just my hat is off to you. And thank you so much for bringing this to, uh, to the English speaking world. because we needed this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there is so much um, about predatory behavior that uh, might not even be related to predation. As I mentioned before, that uh, background stress. Um, there are a lot of dogs that uh, they flee into predation out of uh, pain related problems. Um, oh. Because uh, when dopamine is released into the body, it works like a kind of pain medic uh, drug for them. So it's a kind of self-medication that dogs might, might, it's just 
um, not every dog, but some dogs really um, give themselves a shot of these um, medication, of these pain relief by going into predatory um, behavior. And uh, there are so many things that you cannot just shock away. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, so it, it seems right unfair. You should look behind every behavior is driven by a need. Um, and we should rather look at the need that is behind the behavior. So if we fulfill this need, the dog does not have to show it in such an intense way anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know if I even have much to say to that. It's just, um, yeah, I love thinking about this stuff much more comprehensively. And so let's kind of bring it out a little bit away from our our pet dogs and think about this with conservation dogs based on what you know about these wildlife detector dogs. And, you know, you presented at the wildlife tech conservation dog conference, and I'm sure you had some good questions. Is there anything that practitioners in the conservation dog field should be aware of when thinking about predation substitute training? Is there anything that you've found needs to be altered for our needs, um, you know, particularly thinking about the fact that we want our dogs to not just be engaged with us when we're out in the proximity of wildlife, but also have the capacity to focus and work. Um, so, yeah, is there anything conservation dog specific that we need to talk about here? I think, um, yes. When we talk about uh, conservation dogs, it's... Um we need to uh, understand what kind of dogs are suitable for this job. And we need um, predation here. We need predatory motivation because all the things that you need for your job are derived from predation. We have the search um, as a, yeah, as a kind of, um, if it, it depends on which uh, or what kind of search that you do. Do you do tracking or free search, like scent detection? Then for all these things, you need predatory motivation. And then, of course, as a reinforcer, you need play. And play also comes from predation. It's derived from predation. So you need some level of predatory energy, but it shouldn't be too high <laughs> and it shouldn't be too low because with a dog that is only highly motivated then you cannot work because you don't have the cooperative aspect anymore if your dog mm -hmm. is only in hunting mode when they are out and about on the other hand you don't want a dog that is uh not enough motivated um because you then you cannot you can work, walk them safely everywhere but you cannot work with them so you need the moderate prey drive you need cooperation but you still need a kind of um yeah motivation for predation and this is where the working dogs come uh, into play here they um, need to focus on you but they still need to be able to um, be calm or not to be too distracted by wildlife mm -hmm. sense that they come across and um, yeah I think um, it's quite Mm, it always, I, 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 I can, I can totally not imagine how to work here in this field with an e-collar. It is banned in my country, so I have never come across a working detection dog that was trained by an e-collar, and uh, I, I simply cannot imagine how it works because when you have a dog that is on a sand searching, then you have a high dopamine in the dog's bloodstream, and uh, as soon as you use intimidation, fear, or pain, um, the dopamine is 
totally <laughs> destroyed in the dog's body. Uh -huh. So it all goes against this. And your dog is not able to search anymore at this very moment. So you either have to wait for your dog to recover um, and have to interrupt the search and then you have to start again. Or I, I simply, I, I cannot imagine how it should work because the nice thing about an force-free anti-predation training is that, okay, you're, there is a, for example, your, your dog is searching and then there is a deer and your dog practically waits for the deer to disappear and he can go straight back into the search because the dopamine mm -hmm. flow has never been interrupted. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah no i agree i and i've told this story before on the podcast so i've only used an e-collar one time and again this was a, it was a situation where I've, I've always said i would never do it i've always been very against the tool and i was in a position where i felt like it was my bosses and i felt like it was the only option we had available to us um and we did one session with Barley, and really what I saw was a, a dramatic decrease in his enthusiasm and confidence searching. Um, and it took a week or two from one pretty mild session to get that back up. He's normally a very fast, happy searcher. His tail is all the way up. He's got this lovely periscope tail wag when he's working. and It's so fun. And um, this was... Yeah, his tail was down, he was jumpy, he was nervous to go check places because he wasn't sure exactly what had happened. And this was even with pretty mild um, stimulation and good timing. And I was, I insisted that if this was going to happen to my dog, I was going to be the one administering it. And I still hated what I saw. Um, and Barley isn't the most sensitive dog I've ever handled. So it's also not that he's just a big old softy. Um, so yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't, I did not like at all what I saw as a result of using it. Um, but at the same time, I also wasn't totally satisfied with having to recall him. So I think, you know, much more working on this kind of desensitization first stages that you're talking about and engagement and helping the dog understand just not to chase in the first place is really what both approaches were lacking yeah yeah and recall is also an interrupter it is called a positive interrupter mm -hmm. but it's still an interrupter mm -hmm. and it costs lots of impulse control to follow your recall and not do what they actually want to do which is running into the opposite direction. And, yeah, well, and what uh, we ran into is, obviously the prairie dogs preferred recall over being chased, but for our search, recalling him and reinforcing him and restarting the search interrupted the search yeah. just as much as him chasing or him experiencing the shock from a, a collar. It was like all three of the options were interrupting our work pretty badly. And I, I think, you know, step one is trying to get the right dogs for this job um, and doing as much screening as you can to get a dog that is less likely to struggle with this. And then step two is setting up your searches and your projects and your environment in a way that makes it more likely that dogs and particularly the dogs you have are a tool that can be used adequately. You know, if you want to do dusk surveys in an area full of 
crepuscular animal, <laughs> you're setting your dog up for failure, um, or you're setting your dog up to make this project harder than normal. And sometimes we have temperature issues and all that, all that where you wouldn't necessarily want your dog searching in the middle of the day when animals are less active. But um, yeah, and then we can start thinking about wellness and fulfilling the dog's needs and then thinking about this predation substitute training. So I, there's just so many steps. There's so much to it. And it's not just finding the right reward so that your dog will recall to you because you found the holy grail reward. I feel like people get so focused on that. Yeah. 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 yeah I think um, for dogs that are um, working close to you, so you are still in a distance where you can cooperate with your dog it's totally an alternative to work on standing and watching instead of recall mm -hmm. however this tool does not work when you are not there so um, i sometimes mm -hmm. get asked by people um, who have farm dogs for example um, and the dogs are out around the farm all day and they people don't want them to kill the chickens or whatever so they ask me sure. can i teach my dog to leave alone the chickens and i'm not with the dog and no it doesn't work it's not that kind of training sure. so you as a person are a very or you are, you are a team it only works as a team so when you are out with your dog um and you are in contact then this training works very well, but as soon as your dog is so far away that they cannot communicate with you, it doesn't work anymore. And here yeah. I see a point where it's not suitable for um, detection dogs if you have a detection dog who is supposed to work far away from you then I have to say there is no solution that I have <laughs> for the problem. But to be honest, at least in, in Germany, most of the detection dogs that I know work at a parameter around their humans that they still mm -hmm. are able to communicate with them. And yeah. uh, for this kind of work, yeah, that's totally an option to look into. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think generally for me, even my dogs may go 60, 70, maybe 100 meters away from me. Um, but I don't really want them going any further than that because I don't like asking them to hold an alert while I walk a hundred meters to catch up to them. Uh, so and I think a hundred meters is not a problem. That should be. Yeah, should no, I haven't, I don't yeah. think we've had issues. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that like Skyless Ecology talked about in our animal interactions episode was, and I think similar to what you've talked about is just doing a lot of teaching them these alternative responses when they do see animals. So, you know, yesterday I took both of the boys, my dogs over to, um, we've got a herd of goats um, at the cabins that I'm staying at at my field site. And we just practiced. I let Niffler watch them for a little while. Um, and then I, I did actually interrupt him because I think he may have stared at this herd of moving goats for a very long time. He has a border collie, that is his job. And practiced having him eat, practiced having him search for food in the grass nearby, and we're working on building up these alternative responses while there are goats that are behind a fence and they're moving around and they're tempting, but we can modulate our distance away from them. And teaching more of this automated response 
you know, as much as possible, you know, it's just, it's just something that's really, really important in this field. And I think um, just hoping that because you've got your ball in your pocket or an e-collar on your dog, that you're going to be able to stop them mid chase is um, not good enough. And thinking about all of these other components that go into successfully training a conservation dog is, you know, is what we're here for. Yeah, um. and I think the way that you just um, told it, this is so. This sounds so nice because this is the way that it should be. Um, you take your dog to to a meadow with a fence around, and after mm -hmm. behind this fence there are some slow animals, or like cows or sheep, and then you start with the training. You do not start with a running rabbit. <laughs> you yeah. start cow in the field grazing head down so your dog can see it but it's not a trigger and here is where you establish all your your learning and uh, what i really appreciate what you say is that um you um you worked a little bit on eating so that your dog is able yeah. to eat because this is so important to teach your dog um mm -hmm. that they can take food outside in various situations yes yeah Yeah, that's kind of, and I think this is kind of roughly based on Sarah Streming's worked up protocol for arousal testing. And this was kind of developed for agility dogs. But, you know, she kind of talks about before you enter the agility ring, you want to ensure that your dog can eat and accept their reinforcers um, and that they're eating normally, you know. For, so like for my dog, Barley in particular, if he's not practically choking on the treats as he inhales them, that tells me that he is really distracted. Um, and if he's eating really slowly or refusing food, that is a big sign for me that he's over threshold and too close or too excited or too upset or, you know, too whatever it is. Um, and then Sarah talks about um, marker testing. So can your dog differentiate between um, delivering food to the, to the dog's mouth versus having them catch it in the air versus tug versus catch, you know, kind of. And this obviously means that you would need multiple markers for a dog if you wanted to be able to differentiate. Um, and I do. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners do, even if maybe they don't know they do. And then next is, can they, I think if I've got this right, um, then next would be, can they respond to known cues? And this was kind of what Niffler and I were working on last night around the goats. His first step is, can you eat? Second step is, if I tell you to catch a treat, do I see you anticipate me catching that before catching before I've even thrown it? Or are you kind of like only able to eat if I hand it to you? Um, and then, yeah, if I ask you to sit, do you sit? Do you sit in a way that is normal to you? Or is there an extra latency? Or are, are you more likely to kind of mess up and lie down? And more likely than normal, um, you know, if your dog isn't 100% perfect all the time. And then my next step, and I can't remember if this is Sarah's or not, is I start seeing if the dog can offer a behavior and if the dog can actually demonstrate that they're able to learn in the presence of this trigger. And that's when I know that we can move closer. So it's much less kind of functionally based than what you do. Um, but it is very much so thinking about kind of the steps of moving closer. And it's so, so much more than just rewarding them for disengaging from the prey animal. Exactly. Yeah. This sounds really, really nice. Yeah. I wish all people did that with their dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why we're here. We're trying to spread the word. So um, where, I know you said you've got some courses coming up. Where can people learn more about this? Maybe I'm going to take the class. Um, we can all be <laughs> students together. Um, yeah. Help yeah, us learn we, more about this. 
<laughs> so we have owner courses or I um, teach some owner courses um, together with a colleague and mm -hmm. uh, I also teach an instructor class which will be in November it will start in November and it will be for dog professionals for example trainers behavior consultants behaviorists and uh, yeah uh, yeah and the owner course the, no okay let's stick with the um, instructor course first this will uh, go over 10 weeks so we will meet for 10 weeks wow. um, uh -huh. every week for about um, 90 minutes and we will look into the four different aspects of radiation substitute training and how to teach them to clients and mm -hmm. to apply them on different types of breeds of dogs because there are differences in the breed specific behaviors when it comes to predation. Sure. Every dog was bred to do or to perform a, a kind of uh, or a, a certain aspect of um, predation. Right. Yeah, we talked about like different sections of that predatory sequence yes. maybe hypertrophied right. or suppressed in different breeds. Exactly. Yes, that's the point. So um, yeah. example, okay. the border collies are bred to stalk <laughs> and to creep. Yep, stalking and, uh, yeah. stalking and chasing. They like yeah. those things Don't a lot. want them oh. to grab bite, for example, and kill the mm -hmm. sheep. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah uh, the farmers do not tend to like it when the 45 no, border collie no. <laughs> grab bites um, a brand new baby lamb. So that is not a common trait in border collies the way it would be. And when even compared to cattle dogs other herding dogs like they yeah. are more apt to bite because they're bred exactly. for cows and cows sometimes need a, a good bite to convince them to do what they need to yeah. do anyway yeah. so okay so they talk about different breeds um what else yeah. is covered and uh, yeah so we talk about basically how to apply these this protocol to your individual clients and their dogs so um yeah this is what we're going to do for 10 weeks <laughs> and uh, I also teach an, um, an owner course which is called Oh Dear <laughs> uh <-huh>. um, <laughs> nice pun Oh here. I love that <laughs> I'm really proud of this title <laughs> and, I, know. Uh, I mean managing to make puns in another language is no small feat so my hat is off to you I couldn't yeah, make I had any little, puns in German I, I had some help with that <laughs> well, <laughs> and don't give credit course, just take it <laughs> And in this owner course, we also look into the four um, aspects of um, anti-predation training, but not in that uh, depth, of course, because it's only for four weeks. Um, however, the, uh, um, the, the great thing about the owner course is that we have a look at the teams. So they get instructed by us and they have to upload some homework and some exercises mm -hmm. where they perform uh, certain games or tasks with their dogs. And then we um, instruct them how to improve the relationship and how to, um, yeah, to how to work with their dogs individually. And I think this is the big value of this uh, owner course compared to the book. You can always read the book and it's uh, all the basics are in there that you need to know um, mm -hmm. if you're out and about and you want to survive in the wilderness. But um, if you really want some one-to-one -one coaching and uh, uh, know how to implement it with your dog, then um, the owner course, oh dear, is the... The perfect thing for you. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds great. And I just, I just noticed that you actually have like a freebie, uh, free video on your website. So I just put my email address in there, and um, <laughs> we'll definitely be linking all of that in the show notes. And I, I suspect we're going to have some folks who are really excited about getting into this and learning how to apply it with their their working dogs or their wannabe working dogs, um, because. 
again, this is a huge component of being a successful conservation dog and a successful conservation dog handler. Um, Simply avoiding taking our dogs into the woods is not an option in this field. And I I, I don't think is necessarily an ethical option for any dog owner, but, um, and, and having our dogs on leash is also not always the best solution. Sometimes long lines are not manageable in the, in the field. So how do we get to the point where our, us and our dogs can work as a team out here? And I think this is a huge and helpful component. We, um, yeah, I'm really excited for this course and excited to promote it. And hopefully we'll see some of our students in it or some of our listeners in it as students. Um, yeah, is there anything else you wanted to bring up or circle back to or expand on before we before we go here? Oh, maybe just the uh, the freebie that you just mentioned. I, I didn't even... <laughs> I totally forgot about this on my website. And uh, now that you bring it up, I really like this game. It's a game, basically, that I share here as a freebie. It's it's very simple, but it teaches your dog to stand and watch. And this is, um, on the one hand, it's the basic that you need for um, if they want to uh, watch wildlife without going into the chase. So this is a mm-hmm. kind of um, um, game that you play with them first and then they uh, in order to teach them what 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 you want from them because uh, most of the dogs have never considered to stand and stalk and chase with their mm-hmm. eyes instead of their legs so mm-hmm. um, this teaches them a context that, uh, or a concept that they can um, they can chase in a safe way um, and it's also a need oriented game because it gives them an outlet they can perform predation together with you and they can connect all these positive emotions that they feel during um, hunting with you as a hunting partner mm-hmm. and I think this makes it really nice I, I really love this game it's called the the stalking game and uh, I think every dog should know this <laughs> game because yeah, it's such yeah I'm very <laughs> excited to watch it and uh, go give it a try with uh, I've gotten permission from our landowner to use he's got chickens a mini donkey a horse and a small herd of goats and he's given me permission to <laughs> to use them as uh, <laughs> as bait for all of our uh, all of our training this summer which has been lovely instead of trying to trying to deal with wild animals which is just so much harder so yeah, yeah. well Simone thank you so much for coming on the podcast I learned <laughs> so much and I'm feeling so inspired by this conversation to get out and do some training which is always a good feeling um, and for everyone at home I think I hope you're also feeling inspired and you want to go outside and try some predation substitute training with your dog be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passion and so- skill set you can find our links to these courses the show notes you can donate to canine conservationists we we have transcripts of the episodes. Join our Patreon. You can buy stickers. All of that is over at canineconservationists.org. And we will be back in your headphones next week talking to more amazing practitioners that help uh, make the world of conservation dogs a little bit better and a little bit bigger. Um, Simone, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Kayla, for having me. <laughs> thank you. I really right. enjoyed Bye. this talk. <laughs>